Hey, I'm Kyle Oki. And I'm Jason Hansen. And you are listening to the Agronomous Happy Hour podcast. Rock and roll. That's why they drink vodka over there. You're better off spraying the vodka on those last words. <laughs> <laughs> Drought is no fun to endure. It, it's devil's right hand. <laughs> it, you, oh no, all... that's beer. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour. And yet again, we have a real good one in store for you folks. And the best way I could explain today when I stepped outside is I felt like I could cut the air with a knife. It was Ooh. just that just heavy, humid. It wasn't even that warm, but it felt hotter than some of these 90 plus degree days we were dealing with last year. So talk about just a crazy year over year change and transition and how things have gone. So this my day was my day was uh, we got up early. The wind was blowing. It was overcast. Uh, it was a warmer uh, start, probably 65, but it only peaked out at like 75 and uh, felt good. It was cool, cloudy. Where the day before it was like 85 and humidity was up. Uh, let's see, today's the 7th. July 6th was a spectacular, spectacular Liberty application day. The 140 to 150 rule was in operation. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it uh, it also played into some of the stuff that we did and you got to pay attention to. And, uh, and well, that's, uh, that's why we got the guest on we do today because we're going to do some current events and uh, paying attention to the details of this weather. Right. Absolutely. So it's, th- this is setting it up. It's uh, depending on where you are in the state. Well, actually, I think everywhere in the state right now, we are out of a drought situation. I think I saw the drought monitor. The entire state of North Dakota is out. That includes yep. all the Western extremities that we're dealing with some really, really poor soil moisture conditions as far as not having soil moisture. Now we're the complete opposite. Like I said, we have high humidity. You could cut the air with a knife. And we have wheat that's heading, wheat that's starting to flower. And we couldn't think of a better person to have on the podcast with us on a current events kind of basis than our friend Andrew Friskop, who is the NDSU cereals pathologist working for the extension. Good day, everyone. Uh, I think you kind of hit it on the head. Uh, no pun intended there, but uh, as far <laughs> as like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that we're about a week to 10 days late on this conversation in a normal year, but right now we're on the leading edge of fungicides. And uh, I, I think I live in fungicide world, but I also live in the environment world because I think like the pathogen and you guys are hitting some key parts of kind of makes me cringe a little bit on what's going on out there. What is it like in fungicide world? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, so, sometimes you can say it's lonely. Some of my colleagues call call me a nozzle head. I mean, I don't know what you want to call it. I, I look at it as getting the data, staying on top of the data. And I, I literally try to prepare for every question when it comes to this time, because I never know what to expect anymore. Before, maybe when I started 10 years ago, what to spray, when to spray. And that was it. But now you get all these difficult situations. If it's emergence issues, or I'm growing two different varieties on this on the same pivot to I'm irrigating this year. When should I cut off the water? When should I spray? Should you chemigation? I mean, it's it's a world that I, I I think you have it figured out, and then pick up the phone and completely change your ideas on a new question you have to start thinking about. Oh, agronomy is so much fun; it just keeps changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the word I was going to use. 
But I mean, you're, you're right. So uh, when you when you mention weather, Andrew, and and people probably have a tendency to think about the year before and how the year before was so dry. It, this I'm in the northeast part of the state, Devils Lake, North Dakota. Last year was the first year in my entire ag career where we did not use fungicide at all. We didn't put it in with the herbicide. We didn't spray. I had maybe, I'll take that back. I think I had four fields of barley that the contract was obligated to to have them put on. Otherwise, we didn't do it. And that's not going to be the case this year. No, it's a complete polar opposite. Like uh, when somebody asked me like to compare the two years and last year's questions were, I'm going to spray. And then we talked about it and says, well, maybe I'm not going to spray to actually, I'm just going to put the variety out there because I'm, I'm don't think I'm recover costs for this year. It's just, it's not a matter of if it's when should I spray, what type of product I'm going to spray and what's the weather look like, or tell me more about scab. How does it work? Why is, why are you worried about it after a dry year? I mean, just some of the, some of the questions I've been getting as of late. Yeah. It's uh, we are not, um, we haven't had some of the rains that other places have had for a while, but our, our soil profile is, is we're going to, we got some warm temps coming in here this uh, second week of July, but I'm, I'm not too worried about the crop getting stressed. Uh, I got a, a 50% chance of rain this weekend. Uh, if we catch a half to more than that uh, rain, everything's going to get <clears throat> sprayed for sure. And uh, I've got some stuff. I got some some peas. I got some canola. It's probably going to start here soon. But those are not as, I think, tough as decisions or get the most questions as the emotion around wheat and barley does. Yeah. So, so what do you think that is, Jason? Is it just more of just like the worry of missing a timing or worried if they're going to recover an application? I would like, you know, what, what would you think on that? Because I, I, I agree. Like there's, I feel like there's a lot more decisions on, on barley or wheat and they scrutinize them a little bit more too. My take on that, because out here we'll have our pulse crops always get fungicide, starting with chickpea, then with lentil, then with field pea. And for us, it's a major astakita type play. And it seems like even on dry years, you still always get disease. So you're always applying fungicide and the value has always been higher. It's contracted at a higher rate. So everyone wants to do what they can. This is the one thing they could double down on and preserve yield and really do well. And I, and I think the same is to be said out east with dry beans and canola and some of the others. I think that uh, when, you have, when you have canola and you get white mold, you, you immediately know that you will, it's going to show up as yield loss. When you have scab, it is yield loss, and it is discounts, and it is quality, and it's a grade, and that's where the emotion comes in. If you, anybody here that had 1993 to 99, some of those years, there was it was tremendous on how bad. I mean, rain at that time, in fact, scab, leaf disease, test weight, falling numbers, all that kind of stuff, and we're, we're planted later. So generally, that warmer period of the year, it's getting shifted back. So when you start getting into August, and there'll be some stuff in September, and you know how days are then for harvest and moisture. Right. So right, you could just lose quality in that respect, just right. just from late harvest. Yeah. yeah. No, I take that back. You know, thinking of it with the drought year we had last year, I, I think of all the Durham that's in the northwest part of the state with people that I work with, and think of all the think of how many years 
those of who are growing Durham up in that Northeast Montana, Northwestern North Dakota that dealt with that last real bad scab run, which was 16 and 15, 15 and 16. I remember that year. (laughs) Well, I'm quite certain in 2021, there were guys still selling 15 and 16 crop, but there was such low bushels and such high quality. I think they could blend it off and, and meet grade. And that was, mm-hmm. that was that. And so I, I think they've purged that out of the system only to make room potentially for a, another scabby year with vomitoxin issues and, and Dawn and all that. If everyone isn't diligent and really watching things and, and looking at this fungicide thing. Yeah, I know I, the last three or four days, um, you know, right coming right out of the 4th of July weekend, even my phone has been all over the place in North Dakota from questions. Northwest, North Central, got one from Northeast today. Um, I haven't got anything from the Southwest yet, but I'm, I'm kind of expecting some of those. Maybe Kyle is just doing a great job extending a message out that way. But um, <laughs> I don't know about tells that. You, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of just tells you like there's, you know, there's, there's folks that still remember uh, talking about having a long-term a long-term memory and they remember the bad year and not trying to set themselves for that similar situation like if they're nervous enough that's usually enough for them to spray but though i mean some of the areas that aren't used to spraying are often the areas that get hit the hardest and i don't know what to i don't know what's going to happen this year right i don't I can look at scab models right now. I, I can do my own little gut instinct type of calculations, but at best is our best guess. So all I do, what I do know is when I start seeing humidity and not just one day, like say if you get 90% humidity and then the, it's gone, that's, that doesn't have an effect on scab. It's when you see these six, seven days of prolonged dew periods, high humidity, pretty much what we get in July, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're heading into. That's that's when scab responds the best because it's just, I try to tell folks, and I, when you think about this pathogen, you just don't throw water on it and it starts shooting spores. You, you have to make sure that it has moisture to help start generating these fungal structures. Then they start releasing spores when they want to. And they'll release spores for several days, weeks in, in some cases, if they have the environment. So like last year, when somebody maybe got a six inch rain all of a sudden, and the wheat crop is heading, not a, not, not a concern to me. This year where you're cutting the air with a knife or you're walking through the field and it's still wet at 2 p.m. and you've and you see this maybe three or four times during the week, that's when I get nervous because that's that's when I know that there's a, more, a greater chance. And we're on the leading edge of this of the scab season. And next week, I think, is going to be a very big week for the state to see what we catch for rain, humidity. I think that's going to be the real big push on some of the, the risks that we face. Right. And those of us in southwestern North Dakota, that that's like you were saying, Andrew, it's just I, I think the realization's coming there now. And, and here's been our setup, why I think it was quiet earlier is sure we've had good moisture planting is a little later and so even our heading is behind but i mean now we're starting to see a lot of headed wheat it's flowering or some of it's already flowered but we've got wheat every stage out here and durham in every stage and it was actually starting to dry up some our humidity wasn't as high we were starting to really pick up on some heat and it didn't feel like well hey maybe we're going to get out of this window you know, I think we got plenty to make a crop. This is a normal southwestern North Dakota summer. And then you go to the 4th of July weekend. So basically from July 1st through even tonight, we're supposed to receive more rain. Almost every single night, as soon as the sun sets, we get another thunderstorm to the tune of it ranges, but anywhere from two to six inches of rain in localized areas has fell in a week's time in that part of the state. And 
what you were just saying, that prolonged humid periods where it's humid all day or long parts of the day where you're you're completing that disease triangle, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the most critical component for scab too, is we have plenty of the pathogen, never going to get rid of it. Dry weather isn't going to get rid of it. That's always here. I mean, we have the hosts, plenty of hosts. So I'd always say it's it's the environment, right? I can always blame the environment because I'm a plant pathologist and can hide behind that. But when I when I think about the environment, I'm I'm relative humidity. And it's and sometimes it has to be specific areas. So like for the scab pathogen, it releases most of its spores at night. Coincidentally, that's often the same time that we get the most prolonged moisture too, right? I mean, there's a little bit of an adaptation to pathogen to realize that. And and I think about like, oh, we got hot today. I'm like, okay, what happened? What happened last night? What's what's going to happen tonight? What's that dew point temperature? I mean, what how long are we staying above 80, 85%? Those are the things that, I mean, it gets into kind of a gray area, obviously, but you know, t- trying to defeat like the idea that it's just sunny weather, it means we're fine, right? I mean, that's there's, a, there's more to the picture on that. That's pretty insightful. Sunny weather at six feet is a lot different than being in that canopy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's yep. that's what I do. I, if you walk, I mean, Kyle, you probably you probably got a muck boots on to walk in if you're getting that type of rain. I mean, I'm we haven't oh, had a rain been. now, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you should have. <laughs> we haven't had a rain in a while. In the last two days, uh, even up till three thirty today, I still had damp feet walking into into a crop, and we haven't had rain, so the ground is dry, but it's still holding. Yesterday, the humidity was higher; it stayed wetter. So you have to think about that environment. The dew sit in at night. If I was if I was a scab uh, spore, uh, and if you think that way, how is how is your day going? Do you got free moisture in the morning? Does it stay wet till eleven thirty? Uh, visible on plants is the underneath canopy soft and mucky humid humidity we didn't realize that up here we thought it was strictly rain rain would kind of spook that along there was some years we hardly got any rain but we had high humidity and we got crushed mm-hmm. just smoked yeah I'd, and I, i'll be honest every model that's developed on scab it's almost completely driven by humidity like it rainfall definitely can influence humidity but i I, I just, like I said, I've been like what you're mentioning, Jason, is I just, I, that's kind of how I try to think of trying to explain to the, like these spores because you can't see them, right? I mean, I mean, you have to kind of just imagine what's going on. And that's the best way I can describe it is A, just tell them when they're releasing, B, what's driving it. And even though we think about the weather right now, those seven days before, those 10 days before, just as critical. Kind of, kind of going back that if we were bone dry all the way up to, say, today, July 7th, then we got humidity, our wheat crop may escape, right? It's just we're running into this confluence of high humidity the same time that we're seeing the leading edge. Next week is going to be, I think it's going to be a big week. I mean, honestly, I've been telling folks that the models I think are underpredicting right now. They're very conservative. And I think that we have to be a little bit more aggressive on our assessment of that. Boy, I've got a few thoughts on this now. Um, Put that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. You know, if there's a if there's a thing that says red, yellow, green, when you get rain or humidity, I toss green out because I've gotten burned too many times thinking it's safe. Yep. It's you're not. So a uh, question I got, maybe you get it too, is well, uh, Andrew, uh, I've got wheat on this sunflower ground. It's it was a sunflower ground last year. Uh, I heard you say just five minutes ago that these spores they kind of release at night. What's the distance? That I have to be concerned about. Uh, that's 
Great question. So just a couple of ways I look at it, Jason. Um, there's folks that have done research with drones and collecting spores in the atmosphere, flying around, collecting collecting uh, the fusarium spores. And it, it wasn't uncommon, even up into the atmosphere, almost uh, half a mile to a mile, they're collecting them. So they can travel. The key factor, though, is a spore travels, is it still viable? That, that, that's, that's another key component, right? Um, I, I'd say safely within a mile, of, of any type of source is is pretty is pre- pretty consistent as far as what you'll see. Of course, the more I mean, the more that the more that you see, uh, the, the more that you see residue, the greater the chances. Uh, but I'd say think about it in a mild terms. Can you find some type of fusarium host? And when I say fusarium host, you no, know, it could be corn, it can be wheat or small grains. But pathogens an excellent saprophyte and knows how to survive, and it just it's just so well adapted. So and I. In some cases, the models don't even consider any type of previous crop anymore just because there's this abundance of spores out there. Hmm. Corn has always been like the, hmm, hey, uh, look out. Yep. Yeah, I, I'd say six to six to eight times. I'd say about six to eight times higher risk if you plant out after corn, if you want to put it on a multiplication factor, um, just on some of the rotation studies they've done over the years. Because even, even in studies when they follow soybeans, even conventional tillage to no-till, you're still getting scabbed. But, you know, I, Obviously, corn is the biggest magnet. Rotation does help, but it's not going to solve an issue. It's just all taking a little bit of piece of the puzzle to management. There's no cure, but everything you can do. Now, I think, Jason, maybe we talked at some point, but there's maybe some folks planting wheat after corn this year just because of rotation issues or whatever. I mean, that that's that's going to be a challenge, honestly. It's going to be a pretty big challenge in those situations. I have some two-row barley on corn ground. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a common rotation yeah. in the Southwest is the, is it the is. plant wheat onto corn ground or canola onto corn ground. But that's, that, that gets done pretty commonly, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm listening to this spores moving. It happens at night. You got to start thinking at night. Okay. How humid is it? We definitely, I, even, even as we were kind of hitting that drying up period, there is plenty of humidity in the evenings without question, but think about the influx of Southeast winds. We've had this year. That's what's bringing our humidity mm-hmm. and moisture, right? Yep. We're getting we're yep. getting kind of the the Gulf air that's bringing in all this extra moisture. So even if you were in a rotation that was away from wheat, away from corn on that field, and you're on a broadleaf rotation, you're gonna have likely within a mile a corn or wheat old field, you know, stubble of that field that's going to be right there that you could be catching spores from. Yeah, I know. Kind of a follow up question with that too is. I often get asked how how long does a how long does a uh, the fungus survive on a corn residue, for example? And some of the best ways I I, I think with the studies is you know say three to four years. Three years is probably I'd say the max, but it's not. It keeps going down over time, right? So it's not like it's a hundred percent potential for three years. It's kind of a reduction of fifty percent each year. But that's if that's from the original site to colonization new colonization starts over again. So that's the other thing. So I, I can remind folks that, you know, it's been, I haven't planted in the corn for two years. Do I still run a risk? I'm like, yeah, not as much as if you planted after last year's corn crop. There's still going to be more risk than planting after that than it is after broadleaf. So another question I have, um, fusarium isn't fusarium in every case. And I mean, we're talking with you as the plant pathologist, so you can always geek out and fill us in more on that. But there's different fusarium species, and I know that there's one big causal fusarium pathogen that, that causes fusarium head blight, but I know in southwest North Dakota on our drought years, we've seen 
fusarium crown rot and wheat. So, you know, even if, even if, uh, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here as the farmer saying, nah, we've been so dry for like the last five years. I don't think we're building inoculum. They still have fusarium of some sort. So, I mean, as far as the contributing factors for the different species of fusarium, I mean, there's more than one, right? Yeah, there's, there's a lot more than one. And you give a taxonomist a weekend, they can usually come up with another one too. But um, <laughs> when I when I think about it in our scape, it's uh, Graminiarum is our number one. So that'd be the species. But Kyle, as you mentioned, we have some root rotters. One of those can be Graminiarum. One could be Calmorum. One could be Avenaceum. Uh, in the pea world, we also have Fusarium species. You see, you think about some of the pea root rot issues in Northwest. There you have... Um, you have a different change. Uh, you know, the Solani gets thrown in there. So, I mean, the idea is there's just so much fusarium, right? And there's, there's there's a species association. And when I try to remind folks, is to say, well, I only got I only got fusarium crown rod during a dry year. I'm like, yeah, that means the pathogen is still around and surviving. That's what it tells me. And I I I was presenting this winter a couple times and. I I I try, I try to th- try to think from a perspective, kind of prepping for this year, thinking that it was going to be wetter, just because I'm an optimist in a lot of ways. And it, you know, they all just say this might be the one side of my hundred times I was right on this. But we're wetter. What's the pathogen ju- doing? And I I looked at it from two ways. One is that we know it's surviving, but we know as a biological critter, it's going to keep growing. And last fall, we caught some rain in some areas. It was a little bit wetter for some folks, right? That gave that, what I call the critter, a chance to start producing, start colonizing, start spreading again. So we have to think of this not just as a growing season. We think of this as a whole season type of approach. How about this question? I'll toss at you. But I went through and selected a variety of wheat that has a higher tolerance. Okay. So explain that to me. Because there's there are different different tolerances that are out there, and uh, how do those ratings come about? Because I think sometimes somebody sees something that's an MR rating, moderately resistant, and that's hey, I'm good to go. I don't really need to worry about this whole topic and scab issue. Yeah, variety ratings. I mean, since the surge in scab epidemic since '93, breeding has been a focal point for about any public and most private type of uh, seed companies right now. Um, what we did a couple of years ago, we started changing some of the language instead of like MR, MRMS, MSS, you know, it kind of created more confusion, went to a numeric scale. And how I look at it is that even if you have the best scab variety out in your field, the best scab variety out there, it's going to give you about 50% suppression. So there's your, there's your top, right? So the more susceptible you get, you start losing that suppressive ability. And then you start asking maybe a fungicide to do a little bit more work. And we know fungicides aren't a silver bullet. So what is my best way to manage this? And I, I know there's always seems to be some eye rolls when you, when you say, yep, we got to do all this integrated management. But when it comes down to scab, best variety with the best time fungicide, we get about 70% suppression. So if you're dealing with three parts per million or four parts per million of Dawn at the end of the year, we're going to be all right, right? Hypothetically is that we run into those situations, like I go back to some of the Durham issues we had up in the Northwest. They, they sprayed a fungicide and used the best Durham variety, which is still pretty susceptible. And you're still dealing with 15, 20 parts per million dawn. Sometimes with some of the wheat, you start running into some of those, some of those susceptible varieties where I did everything right and I still can't sell the crop. And a lot of that's because you're starting behind the eight ball is what I, what I refer to it when you select, when you have a variety that's more susceptible. Does that kind of make sense, Jason? I mean, that's, 
that's how I've been trying to break it down a lot of times. I think, uh, you know, you go back to some of the varieties that, uh, that people had, uh, that would, they would, uh, they would plant in order to kind of use that as their first line of defense. And, uh, whenever you breed for something, you give up something. And, uh, they were fairly defensive. They kind of always fell in the same kind of yield plateau. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think people have moved on to just trying to raise wheat and, and manage using fungicides. I mean, I, I don't know what your opinion is, but, uh, of all the cereals, well, not ex- we'll exclude oats, but <laughs> I would, uh, I'd, <laughs> I'd feel more comfortable with, uh, wheat, spring wheat. And then, uh, I think winter wheat, in my opinion, is more susceptible than a spring wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I would probably lean toward uh, a, a two row is like more, feels like more risk because of Don. And to me, Durham's like, yep. that's the highest risk cereal out there. Yeah, I'd, I'd say your best Durham variety is, we call them the lower end of a of a spring wheat scale if you try to start comparing them it's just you know it's just a lot of it's genetics but a lot of it's being able to carry genetics over into durham and not lose quality and other specs at that point from a breeding program perspective and so it's turns into a little bit different dynamic um how to look at it but you know what i i talking to my predecessor a couple times a year uh the idea of marcia mcmullen I, I guess some of you may know, jason probably remembers marcia oh yeah um, well, i do too you know okay so i mean the, the idea is that you know, in the first scab resistance, he talked about the yield component, right, being behind. And we're, you know, we're kind of in a good position in the market in both the public and private where you can still get good scab resistance with pretty good agronomic properties as well. So, I mean, that's kind of talked about the movement of the the breeding efforts. And, um, but I agree. I, I think, you know, in some cases I call it, I see recipe spraying where every year I'm putting two fungicides down. All, one always is going to be at scab timing. And then in other areas, it's, do I spray once? Can I spray at least once to, I never spray my crop. So it's, I always got to think of that in perspective when I get a call or you guys deal with this too, is you know, where are you at? What are they used to, what is somebody used to spraying? What is the risk? And trying to answer some of these questions that can be very difficult in a lot of ways because changing, um, changing a little bit can mean a lot depending on logistical constraints or whatever it may be. Boy, that was a that was a really eye opening fact earlier, where you said even your moderately resistant, so your highest level of resistant, you're still only starting out with fifty percent suppression of mm-hmm. fusarium head blight. So, if you have the conditions, even if you got the best varieties out there, you can expect to see something happen from that. And just depending on the environmental conditions, could really lead to how severe you actually deal with the problem. Um, yeah, I'm. Yeah. I, we can we can overwhelm genetics pretty easily in a lot of our trials. It doesn't take much. All we do is just give it a lot of high humidity and plenty of pathogen, and we can turn our best variety into a pretty poor looking wheat wheat crop. So I, I mean that that tells you just a little bit on the worst case scenario. Now I don't think we ever deal with that. Um, maybe a couple folks will. I mean it's tough to tell, but it's you just got to think from that perspective. We have large data analysis as uh, as part of this U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative where. When you combine everything, the, the the most amount of suppression you get is 70%. So that's if you combine your best variety with the best fungicide across 150, 200 you know, type of small plot trials. So that gives you, tells me like, hey, we don't have a silver bullet, but I say, here, here are your expectations. How much do you want to put reliance on you know, getting under the, underneath that dockage, dockage level? 
Okay, this is this is good stuff. This is getting me to a pivot point here where we've spent <laughs> a lot of time talking about the the varieties, right? And and really just resonating on some of that and the environment that you could have that. But you guys have done a lot of fungicide work and I think you've done well, you've done the continuation of that from your predecessor too, but it's something that's done every year where you do look at least in one or two sites. I think you have your prosper site, you must be a nursery site where you can make an environment where you're or or maybe it just always happens you have the environment where you can you can look at uh fungicide no fungicide on a bunch of varieties so you guys do that every year yeah we have a i've i've started a large contingent so my my strategy is when i started my job i was informed that i wouldn't have to deal with much scab problems out west and in my first three years i spent most of my time talking scab on the western half of the state so why that was impactful, A, it was eye-opening, right? So n- never assume, right? The other thing is with these fungicide trials you talk about, Kyle, I th- think we have 13 out across the state. And I, ha- I have at least one of them on, on some type of uh, small grain in um, Williston, Nesson Valley, Carrington, Landon, Fargo, even got Henninger on the map, I think, last year. Um, so it's one thing I'm trying to spread it out. Now, we can create those environments and really test efficacy, but I... I have about maybe 50-50 blend of what I call dry land versus mist irrigated sites just to get a, I call like the more realistic expectation. Like I don't, I don't expect to get 30 parts per million dawn in my grain if I'm a grower in North Dakota, especially a spring wheat grower. But if I'm at that five to six and I see the influence of a fungicide getting it down 50, 60%, that's, that's meaningful, right? That's a big deal. I, I mean, I, and that's, yeah. So, and I, I also believe in site specific data, um, when I when I give a talk, if I'm in Devil's Lake or if I'm out in Williston or Hedinger or Dickinson, um, try to give them site specific data. So what what I'm presenting, it's just not it's just not what we're looking at in Fargo, right? It, it's not just Fargo. It's I'm kind of hedging risk to get at least hopefully 50% successful trials and fungicide suppression and give a summary, but also have that site specific data as well. Well, that resonates with your local audiences too. That is a big deal because. I, I do the same thing, although I look at things on a bigger scale now, so I, I get past that too. But it's the one number one thing I hear the most, right? Well, let's say for the person in Williston, North Dakota, and they get stuff from, you know, Rutland, North Dakota, or Wapaton, mm-hmm. or even Fargo. They're they're like, that isn't even close to here. The soils are different. The environment's different. Yep. Completely opposite. Yep. And so whatever that data had, it kind of gets discounted. But if you can show them something from their backyard and still have the same trend, and then those people can reevaluate or readjust and go, okay, even in our environment, we're seeing positive changes from fungicide. And then they can look at those areas that really get hammered hard from major disease mm-hmm. pressure and go, okay, what do I need to know about fungicide efficacy? What do I need to know about varietal response to fungicide? Here we go. Yeah, that, that, yeah I think that's... It's valuable, and a lot of reasons why I end up trying to. I tell everybody that I change everything in percent response, basically now, because whether I'm dealing with a thirty bushel environment or a ninety bushel environment, or you know, two parts per million of dawn versus fifteen to twenty, you know, you can still see that percent suppression remain the same. It's a trend, like you said, it's it's a consistent trend. Just it's the same pathogen, changing the environment to make it less or make it more or less susceptible. And you still see that trend. And that's kind of my data generation. And I, I take a lot of pride in those fungicide trials because I like getting the RECs involved and 
um, getting them motivated. And even if it's a dry year, it's still valuable data to me because like last year is a way to, what was your expectation from a scab fungicide if I sprayed? Well, here's the yield data, likely didn't pay for it. I mean, that's, that's still valuable data. And I kind of hold on to it until, you know, after so many years, you kind of able to combine this data based on the situations that were presented. When I was at the Lake Region Roundup and you were up there speaking about this topic in a drought year, you're committed 110%. <laughs> and, and we really appreciate that because that is something where you're like, well, I don't know. I'm going to go listen. Then you start thinking, oh, my nitrogen levels are really messed up this year because of the drought. I'm going to have a rotation where here I go. I got two row barley on corn. That's why I had to pay attention to that. So, What's the strangest thing you've encountered when scouting in the spring? Uh, that would have to be, I found a dead northern pike out in the middle of a field. That's pretty unique. I don't suppose that was on the list of observations to pick from in your app. <laughs> Actually, with FarmQA, I could easily make that adjustment in the field. We've mentioned FarmQA before. You know, the company based right here in North Dakota with digital tools for scouting, recommendations, soil sampling, and more. That's one of the things that makes FarmQA so valuable when scouting. It's super flexible. You can create the templates in any way you need for any crop, any pests, or disease, any season. With FarmQA, you can be sure your scouts are in the right fields looking for the right things, including something unique like a dead northern pike. Absolutely. FarmQA makes it easy to get in, record those observations, and get a professional report to your grower right from the field with treatment recommendations too. That's efficient. That's FarmQA. Check them out at farmqa.com or follow FarmQA on Twitter. You know... There are a lot of prescription programs available these days. But remember, not all these programs and services are made equal. I would agree. Some are using very basic information that doesn't always represent actual field variability. Hey, I know of a more complex and robust software that can achieve accurate representation of productivity zones for your field. Yeah, complex and robust. Didn't you date a girl like that once? Hey, I'm, I'm talking about a software that can handle a complex and robust situation like this spring we're having. Oh, my bad. What software would that be? That would be ADMS from GK Technology. Oh, yeah, I knew that. It's the egg data mapping solution. Make sure to check them out at www.gktechinc.com to learn more. Ask for Darren, Kelly, Cheryl, or Sarah. And then there's all, all the other information that we haven't even touched on. It is everybody's like the big, I think the big three, in my opinion, are they want to know what fungicide, they want to know when to do that, and they want to know how to do it. Those are probably, those are the three that really stick. So let's, let's start on the top of that list because the fungicide thing isn't just tebiconazole and the, the metconazole and tebi plus prothioconazole anymore. It's a lot more than that. So, I mean, name brand wise, it's not Prosaro, Folicure, or Corumba anymore. There's, there's new players in the game and they're from the same companies, but there's, there's new products out there. Cause, uh, what is it? You have, a uh, 
a Prasaro Pro now from Bayer. You have mm-hmm. uh, Miravis Ace, Ace yep. from, from Syngenta. That's been around for a couple of years. They've really, really run hard campaigning on on that. And uh, Spherix, is that the new one from BASF? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's should a lot should... there's a lot there. There's a different classic chemistry or fungicide that's in all these or some of them. Yeah. yeah. Let's dive into those a little bit, right? I mean, I think that's on the forefront. So I I'd say up until the last three years, three years ago, when we had you know the AIs and Prosaro and Carumba and Proline, those are basically you know offering. I always say fifty percent suppression and maybe give or take five to ten percent, given on the trial, given the year. Tebiconazole. You do, you do get a reduced suppression, 25, 20%, I think, 20, 25 is what I'm comfortable saying on suppression. And that was our message for the longest time. And we only had triazoles, only had triazoles. Miravisase came into the market. Um, the component of uh, pidiflumetafen or adepidin, um, trademark name, uh, plus basically propiconazole or the tilt out there. Um, we're starting to see pretty good suppression with a new, you know, a new frac group or a, no, a new new chemical group. And Again, that put us in that range of 50 to 60%. Okay, so we, we have a theme there. This Next or this year, we have Prosaro Pro and Spherix. Uh, Prosaro Pro is basically Prosaro, and they added Fluopyram and SDHI. Fluopyram kind of got its legs on the ground in the uh, sudden death world in soybeans as a seed treatment, which is also caused by Fusarium. So the idea was to carry some of that Fusarium suppressiveness into uh, into the wheat world or small grain world and add that with the Prosaro. And um uh, Severix is um, more or less Corumba and Proline combined, right? And so it's metconazole and prothioconazole. So we have some of the reorganization of some of the active ingredients we've had. And, you know, kind of the summary statement I have is they all look pretty good, 50 to 60%. We've been looking at Pissarro Pro, you know, dating back a few years ago. We've been looking at Spherix for a couple of years. Before Mervisase came on the market, we were looking at that before it got labeled. Just to have that information, you know, being able to work with the private companies to develop that information so I had you know, I had something to speak on and we can get 50 to 60 percent I think I don't think we'll ever get higher than that and I think a large part of that goes back to when we're spraying we can we can target as many heads as we can but there's always going to be a few more I feel like that come unprotected and although they may not be yield they're contributing to down levels something along that yield along that lines of thinking so you know, like right now as I just I just say we have great products and uh, out there, like if they give you 50, 60% suppression, the only one that doesn't provide as much is Tebuconazole. And that's always has been in that 25 to 30%, but it was very valuable in 1997 and 1998 uh, was the only fungicide we had. And that was the section 18 that kind of brought scab fungicides into the world, especially up in the upper Midwest. So you were, you were actually setting yourself up for a really good transition into the how to apply it. But before we get to the how to apply it to get it onto each head and the kind of work you guys have done and what you know as far as that goes i i, I want to go into the the when part of it before the how and and the when to apply um i i think it's glaringly obvious from a lot of companies a lot of agronomists i'm seeing it on social media now all the time like it used to be just you guys that had a here's an early flower mid flower it's too late now I see a lot of people recreating those timings, but the one piece that's gotten confusing is there's been a sec. Is it a section 18 C or, or the, there's been extra labeling in to say you can come in earlier and apply a scab fungicide before flower 
during heading before flower and still see fusarium suppression? I, I, I guess I, I want you to just to explain what should you expect if you're going in before true flower, because let's, let's sit with the baseline and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the baseline of you're, you're always trying to make an application during anthesis, right? That is the critical timing. That's when you should be doing it. Yeah. So I, I, you know, based off some of the data last couple of years that we've generated, I, I'm, I'm kind of going to use that and kind of what I've been telling everybody else. But when you start seeing those first anthers move in the center of the head, that's when I say that's that's the time you can start making an application for the most amount of suppression. Now, if you come in too early on that, you still get scab suppression. You just don't get as much as if you hit it, you know, maybe a day or two later at early flowering. I think the biggest piece of the timing puzzle is the last six years, and it's not just North Dakota, but everybody else is our window of opportunity on that back end. And when I talk about the back end, meaning seven days later, is you still see scab suppression hold. So if you have early flowering in the field, or if Jason goes out and says, we're early flowering right here in the field, start your stopwatch. stopwatch. You have about seven days to make an effective application. So, I mean, we've expanded our knowledge because... Um, I was told before is you have about two days for an effective application, right? That mm. was always, and it's always better to be too early than too late. So yep. five years ago, I started trying to change this mentality. It's like, no, our, our window is a little bit bigger. And rather, you know, and we've seen that in both wheat and then barley, um, which complicated some things. Um, you mentioned a label came out where you can go in at half head, um, uh, specifically with uh, Miravis Ace. You can go in for half head. And we've, We've looked at that. We looked at timings, uh, considerable amount of timings from Aravisace, and we can see scab suppression in the field, but we just don't see the dawn suppression hold when you come in too mm. early. And a part of that is probably just sitting, it probably starts running out at some point, being able to keep fending off the Zarium is kind of what I'm thinking. The other thing too is, although you could protect some heads at half head, there's still a lot of heads that aren't even probably on showing yet in some cases. So my recommendation doesn't matter what fungicide it is, early flowering, start that stopwatch. There's no such thing as a perfect timing. I always say there's, if somebody has that, they can show me because I have not, I've never seen that yet, but it's not like you miss your flowering. window. Like, like, uh, for white mold, you could be too late. Right. You, you, you have can't, most, yeah. you can't correct white mold. Once you have it, you have right. to prevent it. But in this fusarium head blight thing, it's not like if you have mostly white anthers and you know, it's pollinated, you can still do something. You can still protect it. Yeah, you can, I, I say you have about, I say a good seven days, a good seven days for an application. That helps us. I think that's, I think that's extremely helpful because of random storms coming through high winds or whatever mother nature is throwing at us. So that's or, uh, an airplane just getting totally backlogged. Yeah. Yep, just air, can't, you just physically right can't get a, the time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I say, if you're going to make that application, that's it. Oh, barley's a little bit different, right? I mean, flowers in the boot stage. Um, that's why I think it's even more important that you have as many heads as exposed as possible. And I always say full head plus seven days in that range or window. And a lot of that is, um, goes back to fungicide coverage. You know, fungicides don't move all that well. They only probably move as much as they protect. And all the fungicide systemic research they look at is done on leaves. They don't ever do it on a small grain spike. So, I mean, how do we, how do we look at that? Or how do we think about that? That's, so that's a-, a little bit different. Mm-hmm. That's a heck of a yes. way to bring it up because you they do talk about all the time about the the translocation of fungicides on a leaf. But you got to imagine, even if you could hit the flag leaf, it's got to transfer that from the flag leaf all the way up the head. Can it actually do be it. done? No, probably not realistically without being watered down. And so that's that's why I wanted to ask you the timing thing is because 
you know how the game of telephone goes, right? So there's an early label. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't know it at all, huh? <laughs> sure. Yeah, that that's where, I mean, I've heard that translated in a lot earlier timing where there, there are some farmers that I've heard have asked me like, well, I heard if I could put this on during flag leaf, I would have suppression of scab. And I even heard this spring, like, well, if we did a fungicide during our herbicide timing, if we were a little late, we'd have protection. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. okay, pump the brakes. No, that's not possible. This ain't that Bitcoin. Just... <laughs> well, I'm telling you, if it's going like Bitcoin, it's ain't, it ain't going to go good. Uh... Or any crypto. She's going down. It ain't good. <laughs> there's just so There's just so much information that you've put out, but it's still, that's one of the bigger questions I get every year is timing when to do this. And it, it uh, we're going to get warm. So things are going to speed up. So you might think it's, we're going to be four or five days out. And then it comes three, four days. The variety, it, it, how it flowers is different. So that, that changes it. And so it's uh, as an agronomist, it's, it is a lot of work to kind of get this. And you're right. It comes down to, you got your own way of doing it and getting as, as close as you can. I, I've, I've hit some about perfect, but the vast majority, it's just close. Yeah. That's, I, and that's, I say close, close is sometimes all we can get. And it's, and it's, that's the reality of it. Like I'm, I'm not oblivious. I don't live in a vacuum or anything like that. Like I, I totally get what you mean by that. Is that, but you said, you know, sometimes like, I think I hit it perfect. That's, that's good to hear that. Cause you have your system in place or you're like, I might be a few days after perfect. That's still good to my ears. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad it's still being done. I, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of putting a, a, a non-ionic surfactant in my fungicides because I'm not, like you said, I, I'm going to get stuff on leaves and, and all these products are really good. They got, Triazole, they got SDHI uh, chemistry in there. I'm going to keep that green long, but my target is that head. Mm-hmm. That's my true target. That's what I. That's what I want to do. So I, I'm going to try to spread out as much as I can. I've had good results by ground. I've had good results by plane. It isn't. It's more who's running the piece of equipment and the timing. It's not like one's better than the other. I, I don't, I don't get into that because when you do that, and you're behind the eight ball. Then sometimes eat crow. <laughs> Not a fond fan of crow. <laughs> but if I just think when you said, okay, you got kind of a seven day window, I've got a good month of stuff going to happen in front of me. I know. Potential wise. And this is the first year that I've never had fungicide go out on wheat or barley in a, in a, well, I didn't last year. Because it was the drought, for sure, no fungicide, period. And now this year, no fungicide. It's usually that 4th of July, 28th of June through the 6th of July. That just, boom, nothing, because we're so far behind. It's crazy. To me, this is where, uh, being the agronomist, you get the time to shine, right? Because of all these factors you guys have been talking about is you can't time this exactly right. But you do have a window, and there are multiple factors, like the how you apply it, the fungicide you pick to choose what variety did you grow what rotation do you have what are your conditions like i mean some things are gut feeling some things are every agronomist has their way of prioritizing and and just like you were saying jason you've got such spread out planting that it's going to go for a month but i guarantee in your head you have a process and you go yep this stuff's wheat on wheat this stuff's barley on corn my priority number one when it hits timing for that 
that stuff gets the priority. Doesn't matter about everything else. Like you're going to hit this. This is where the biggest impact's going to be. And this is why they're paying you as the agronomist to be there to tell them this is what you're doing when you're doing it. And this is why you're doing it. You, you, you have a process, but I mean, you just, you're adding up all the cumulative things to, to make this be the most impactful that it could possibly be. I, I, uh, here's what I do. I, I go and download the NDSU wheat barley varieties. So I get that information on, on scab ratings because I kind of want to know that. I know my, I know what's on the rotation. I almost always print out that thing you had with the too early, just right, too late on barley and wheat. I have that with me. Um, I download uh, information that's been presented. And then uh, I get planning dates from all my farmers too. So I can kind of plan routes mm-hmm. and do things like that. It's still a lot of work because... How did the field emerge is one thing. Um, you know, your headlands come in generally. Uh, we don't have some of the big high elevations you do, Kyle, lows and highs. You know how things can mm-hmm. change and be variable that way too. So, yeah, it's uh, it's fun to a certain point. <laughs> well, it, it, you're talking about this, Jason. This is to make one decision, right? Yeah. And- Time doesn't stop, right? <laughs> but you're, you're making one decision at this point where you have everything else going on at the same time. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it is a lot of work because you think about the workload, especially when you have a late planted crop and aren't thinking about this, these decisions at the same time as everything else that is going on. Well, I don't know if I used the word fun, but I did use the, the word your time to shine. But uh, I, I know there's other things that are important to you too, like the flea beetle season, which you just got finished with and... I don't think you have the word fun to explain <laughs> no. that. And so maybe no. uh, if the scab season extends for a whole month, you're going to have uh, maybe not to near the critical level that the flea beetle thing has, but you're probably going to be tired of it by the end of that, oh. that window. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have any durum. I don't have any winter wheat. I have, a lo- I have a lot of spring wheat. My three biggest crops are canola. Well, spring wheat's number one. Canola is very close, is number two, and then soybeans is three. But barley moved up quite a bit this year. There was a lot, pretty high contracts, so a lot of two-row. That's going to take some extra attention and, and time with that. So you got to kind of get geared up of when that timing is as well. But then it's just kind of telling people, hey, you know what? I always, I'm like, my first guy's out, and like, I think we're going to be five days out. And then something will happen with the weather. It's like, oh, guess what? It's going to be three. Yep. Okay. I just got to make sure everything's cleaned out and ready to go at that time. And it's tough. I mean, um, to do it is not that big a deal. To pull a trigger, to spend that kind of money when you, when your crop is heading, that's that's still, even if you've done it and you know it's good to do, it's still like a really tough thing to do, I think. I think I think a lot of it's an element of the unknown, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you spray for a foliar disease, you can see clean leaves, right? Maybe you just spray skip, and you just like, okay, see, this is we're, we're we're helping grain fail, but unfortunately, scab, you do it, and then you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and then you look at yield. Basically, I mean, you can get an idea of what's happening in the field, but a lot of it comes down to is right at the end when everybody's checking, checking and, what's coming through the monitor. And is the agronomist making the recommendation when you're brand new, you have nothing to reference and check against, but like we've all experienced, you know, I remember years where you knew you had the conditions, like the model showed it, you had bad conditions, like, yep, let's do it. And then you had years 
where you're like, well, we did earlier and now we're on the tapering end of it. And I don't know if it's that big of a deal. And then you pull them off and you go, well, yeah, if you still want to spray, you could do tebiconazole. I don't think we're going to have as big of a deal. It's drying out all this. And then you go to those fields at the end and you're like, son of a bitch. We should have just <laughs> freaking kept, you know, stick yep. to the status quo. Yep. Should have done it. No, it's, you guys are in that position, Kyle. I mean, what you what you're going through that is it's a no brainer. Anybody that is experiencing that humidity, that much moisture, I don't care what the cereal crop is out there, you're going to have to do it. We are going to be very much like what you just described. If we don't catch this rain, mm -hmm. there's going to be that temp that temptation to not, to not to do, do it. it. Mm -hmm. But it's it's one of them things where I think even last year, people that did some work, they're still they're still. If you're getting some response last year. To that application, think about this year from the disease standpoint. So, yeah, it's going to be. I don't. I don't know. It's. I. I. It's. It's fun. Uh, I think it still is because you get out to um, when you're out there. Uh, you get that smell of the pollination of wheat in particular. There's just there's some benefits to being out and all that stuff still, and you kind of get to know your varieties a little bit. Uh, a question I have for you, Andrew, is this. This is what I, this is a question that I've had posed to me or thought were late planted. And uh, two of those products you listed, Miravis Ace, Prasara Pro, have an SDHI fungicide, which has a tendency to keep a plant greener longer. Mm -hmm. I'm in a scenario where I don't know if I want to be greener longer, particularly two-row barley, which has a tendency to stay green on its own. When it comes, you want a direct harvest. What have you guys seen in those your replicated trials or your opinion or any of that stuff? Yeah, I, I got that question twice today, actually. So <laughs> I know I know what you're talking about. Um, so you know, I haven't. So we, we've looked at this a couple of different ways. I'll, I'll say that first. We've run NDVI um, machines over stuff to see if we can capture any potential greener longer in some of our small plots, and it's been inconsistent. Um, but then again, I can get photos from a grower uh, that's split a field or even done a couple different strips across the field that you can appears to be a pretty significant greening effect. Um, so I, I always say, like, you know, I, I'm aware of it. I, I I know it can occur. When, why, how? I I don't know that answer. Okay. Right? And it, it's tough. You know, it's tough to explore. It kind of just goes down to finding everything aligning at the right time to be able to capture it. But yeah, I, I, I have heard of it. I've, I'm, I'm aware of it. I just, I don't have that hard, that hard data to explain how much it extends it or if it's the Northern tier, North Dakota versus the Southern tier, if it's this much rainfall versus I just, it kind of gets into this box of unknowns that it makes me a little bit uncomfortable to talk about just because I don't have uh, everything I say is this is my observations, but there's no, there's no definitive response on the why. I just don't want to have, I'm not, I'm not too scared of it. I just want to know how to position it to let people know, because sometimes we might be running out of certain products and what you wanted to use and what you do use might be two different things. Well, that's an absolute this year. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and barley, barley is like the Dawn thing. Okay, whatever. But when you keep that plant greener, longer, your plump and your test weight immediately translates and, and yield. Terry, Terry Gregoire talked about that all the time on barley. And people were like, well, you get a crew in to kind of help you custom harvest some stuff. And it's like, oh, they're complaining because it's too tough. It doesn't. It's like, it looks like mulch coming out of your lawnmower out the back of the combine because it's still green. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
but man, it does it yield. <laughs> well, that's what I was so, going to say. The, the greener, longer thing I know can be a hindrance to harvest, but I know all of our experiences, yes, your plump and your yield and your test weight all benefit from that. And so as long as you're early enough and granted this year's later, so it, it just, it's all, it's all timing on stuff. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, Jason, you, you can give me some of your observations after this year, because I think you'll have the spectrum of decisions <laughs> on barley and it's going to be extended for the next three weeks. So I think you'll have a pretty good I, I need a very high low year. humidity. I need a low humidity <laughs> August and September. That's what I need. T- Dude, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I, with the amount of Turo that I have, I'm really concerned that, you know how it is when you get into September, late August, as your days get shorter, humidity comes up. You just don't have the harvest days and uh we the weather you're getting kyle if we had that during harvest that would be, would be a train wreck yes yeah. detrimental yes <laughs> i'm being yeah. politically correct saying that. <laughs> um so so i got i got another gear to change here we've spent a lot of effort talking about fusarium head blight and rightfully so but let's not put the blinders on on what the your main questions have been for like the last three four years and and that's Urgot. And I and I Good don't night, guys. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> and and to your uh I'll appease you on this is I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about it. I'm just gonna ask, do you think we are gonna see Urgot issues this year? Or is that just gonna be a forgotten about thing because the scab thing is gonna overpower that? Uh that's a great question. Um I I think we're gonna see some Urgot. I guarantee we're gonna see some Urgot. I don't know how much. I, I think kind of what you're referencing, Kyle, the last couple of years, I, I've tried to go down a few rabbit holes trying to figure out the why. And I think you even done some of your own little homework looking at copper deficiency or maybe trying to correlate that. And, and there's, and it's inconsistent, yeah, right? Exactly. I, I think maybe that's a term. Yep. Yeah. I think that's yep. a term I use. Um, I think we're going to see some, I, I, my angle on this is trying to better understand this disease. We've, the wheat commission has given my program funding to, Look at variety resistance. We're also exploring fungicides because there are a few fungicides that have ergot suppression on the label. Yes, um, that, and that's and that's why so, I wanted to pivot into this. Is yeah, Jason made the point earlier, and and I filled in there too. Is that if you had the choice, you'd probably choose certain fungicides based on what the labels say. It probably doesn't matter this year because all the shortage stuff, the supply chain issues, logistics, blah blah blah, on and on. We know. It's a broken record. It's an issue. When it comes to the fungicide thing this year, just like it's been for the insecticide thing this year, you're probably just going to get what you can get your hands on. And every week is going to be different. That would be my guess. Um, But if you were in a perfect world and you could choose the fungicide you wanted, there are, like you said, at least one or two products that list suppression for ergot. And so in my mind, a Western North Dakota producer is going to look at that and go, boom, automatically they're going to choose that just because of the ergot issues they've been dealing with. But what are the expectations? I, now, when I see suppression, I go, whatever, it's suppression. <laughs> to me, to me, that's a marketing thing. That's a marketer from those major companies saying, we need to have this on the label, even if it is with an asterisk and it's suppression, because people are going to notice it. And that will mm-hmm. choose or that'll be a deciding factor. It'll help them sell the product. But, uh, you know, when you hear suppression, I mean, what does it mean? Yeah, so I, I look at this from diff- a couple of different angles. I, I, I say every every fungicide suppresses. I, don't, I never use the term control 
because that just makes me think that I own everything in that space, right? But when I hear suppression on in this regards, I have to go back to, so what is what is meant for this specific disease and suppression? So the story I have with this is two years ago, we started exploring fungicide trials in ergot. Uh, they're a pain to do. Um, it's, uh, you know, believe it or not, spring wheat is pretty resistant to ergot. But for whatever reason, we're seeing that we're still having issues. And I won't go into that big long diatribe, but when we think about fungicides, um, I've been using male sterile lines as our host crop. And the reason why I'm doing that is they're super susceptible to ergot. So, you know, fact 101, fungicide efficacy, find your most susceptible host. So we explored it. Um, we've looked at Miravis Ace, for example, for several years. Uh, I believe that has a label. We'll have a label for ergot suppression. And the almighty answer, what is ergot suppression as defined for ergot? I, I think that's about 10 to 20% suppression. So what does that mean? So that, well, just based on what you said earlier, that means it's less effective than tebuconazole on scab. That's that's how I'm interpreting yes. it. Because you that's, were saying way to look at it. 20% mm-hmm. suppression with uh, generic folic here. And if you're only seeing 10 to 15%, well, then you're saying that's less than that. So that's what you can expect out of that. So if you're expecting your value to come from that, you might need to reevaluate. But but I would say this year, yeah, you you wave the ergot thing and you focus on scab the fusarium head blade. I think yeah. that's where the focus is. Yeah. The conditions are there, and we know it. Yeah, target of the head. You know, I, you know, we think about that targeting a head, and in this case, or what what disease are we targeting? And I decisions should be made on fusarium head blade because that's where the most bane for your buck is going to be in this situation. The the ergot story with fungicides is going to be something that we continue to explore just to see if we can fine tune it, but it's. I don't think we're going to see anything, you know, great from a suppression thing only because we're still we're still dealing with the same logistical concerns of spraying on a heading crop. Mm-hmm. And ergot pathogen infects earlier than a scab pathogen. So what I worry about is decisions being made for an ergot which would be way too early for scab mm-hmm. and then we might be, you know, how you want to look and we're not we're not managing maybe the disease of interest this year, simply put. And these and these fungicides also we've talked yeah little ergot a lot of head scab there's also they they deliver other disease suppression as well rusts things that would that would come in late so everybody just talks about that head scab piece but part of the reason that your plant stays greener longer is it keeps other potential diseases out which Kyle you're gonna be you might be pretty rampant with things out there due to your moisture. So uh, well, with with the spring diseases, I've seen just a normally a little bit of tan spots. One thing, but when I see tan spot and septoria on sunflower rotations, that that tells me what I need to know. Sure, and, and, you know, out here. So if I see that kind of stuff, I, I know we're going to have other foliar leaf diseases too. And a, a lot of people are going hard on the strobies this year. They went to a more premium. That was until they started really flashing the crap out of stuff. And they're really honing back on what they did with fungicides in, in the herbicide season. Another unique situation, different deal we can reflect on later. But uh, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of benefits that come from those premium fungicides outside of just scab suppression. You're getting a lot of foliar yeah, leaf I, disease. I call it the yep, indirect benefit is what I call it. I mean, you're, you're indirect target, but you're still, I mean, it's a leaf is going to catch the fungicide. It's not like you're hitting the, the leaf. So it's, yeah. it's still a... Good question. And I, I think, yeah, absolutely. You can give some little bit longer season protection. No, so a lot, lot, lot of really good stuff on this. 
Um, but this is happy hour. And I think I've been on your I've been, I've been on your website like twenty times already this week. <laughs> the fun the NDSU fungicide guide because I don't know where I put my hard copy. I got like you need another one. We can probably I could probably sign one for you. Does that work? <laughs> really? We'll get you an autograph copy. I like it. <laughs> I only have my Pete Neal weed guide. Oh, signed copy. Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, maybe <laughs> yeah. I'll put a stamp on it that says "Poor Jason again" or something like that. And with that, always oh, again, folks, yep. to use Presara Pro or Proline. <laughs> I got to give Pete a little heck on that, but uh, yeah, I just funny. download stuff because I've I've got uh, yeah I've had some stuff working with some retailers on just things in inventory. There's things that are sold out. Uh, how do you what do you got to do? And then it's talking the product and some of the timing. So. Really glad you could do that because it's uh, yeah we got to pay got to pay attention to it. The world is the world is watching and uh, we're late. The state is late and uh, we just need things to kind of shake out for us. It's just another year, another different cha- set of challenges. But Kansas has challenges in their production year, so you can see where some of the focus is right now and trying to figure out what our crop's going to be like. So hey, remember the, well, the first three letters in fungicide are fun, right? <laughs> I thought we only used that for fungi. Right? I don't know. Well, well, well. Speaking of fun, this has been a great conversation. It has been a lot of fun, and and this is happy hour. And so we're we're gonna get to how you could contact Andrew, or you can you can get him on Twitter. You could you could email. You could see the work he's done. But it is happy hour first. So you know, in in typical fashion, we we got to talk about what we're having. Because that's an important part of this podcast, too, is that it is the uh, common elixir that gets the conversation going and really gets it spinning off into you never know what direction sometimes. So, I, you know, in happy hour tradition, we always got to let the guests go first. Oh, that's great. So <laughs> let's put you on the spot. So I'm having a dry dock brewing apricot blonde. Uh, it's based out of Denver. It was a gift from my cousin that drove up a couple of weeks ago and brought me brought me a case so that that is what i'm like and it's my summer brew it might be my official summer brew from now on oh, i like it that much dry dock okay i see positive thoughts like you always said it's okay to have dry as a positive thought this year <laughs> what do sorry you with my dry humor too very <laughs> Oh boy, where's the drum set when I need it? Yeah. I went, this is this is about one of, this is my summer brew that I generally lean on. Uh I'll drink anything, but this just is the Line and Kugel Summer Shandy. It's uh mm-hmm. just that lemonade kind of beer kind of feels like summer and it's I'm drinking it because it finally feels like summer. Summer. You know, <laughs> it's only taken to the first week of July for that to happen, but yeah, it's everybody's that's had that. It's that lemonade kind of beer taste. A mild 1.02 BLE. <laughs> I haven't done my BLE calculation yet. You just you just put me in the deer in the headlights moment. I better. We're just nope. talking fungicide. You got you got to know timing. You got to know rates. You got to know all that stuff, man. You got to get the BLE. Yeah, my, 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 my timing is <laughs> off on the BLE. But I did find something different, and I didn't grab an IPA like I normally did. I, I went something different and I tell you what, it's easy to find an IPA if that's what you want. And it must be seasonally, especially in the summer. Like when you're looking at the craft beer section, that has to dominate like 70 plus percent of what's out there. 
And so I don't feel as bad not finding something different, you know, as far as different from an IPA. But I did find a Hefeweizen that mm. that that comes from Stonehome Brewing. And so that's in uh, Watford City, North Dakota. But they also have a satellite location in Bismarck. And so I think they're always in uh, there. They have uh, it's the brewing company and there's a restaurant and they're always connected to. Well, there's only two of them, but they're connected to uh, First International Bank, I believe, is is what they're next to. Ah, But anyways, this this uh, this one is called Ramstein Badlands Hefeweizen. And, you know, for a summer drink, it's kind of a refreshing beer. It almost uh, reminds me almost like it, it would be like a wine almost of the beers. If you could explain it like that, but that comes in at a 5.2 ABV, which would make it a 1.26 BLE. Or if you do math like Jason, I guess, because they're in <laughs> pint cans, it's a 1.68 BLE. No, so I got my math down. No, <laughs> now we're talking. Well, we'll tag you in, Andrew. So people that are listening if on our social media platforms can can find you and uh and we'll get you in the show notes and everything. And uh, yeah, we greatly appreciate your time and all the effort you do to help cereal producers, farmers, retailers, mm-hmm. crop consultants in the state and area with uh, this topic because even it's an annual deal. And yeah. it's always good to revisit and, and talk. So we appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the invite. I um, always like talking to you guys and um, kind of reminiscing about the common questions of of the new or maybe some of the old ones we can always bring up. So yeah, appreciate appreciate me having me on. Perfect. No, so thank you, Andrew, and thank you for everyone else listening to the podcast. As always, we appreciate you guys listening all the way to the end, even with the beer banter talk, because yeah. uh, that can get kind of silly sometimes. But hey, it's fun. It's happy hour. It's what we do. So. With that, everyone, we'll say, hey, hopefully you guys learned something new on Scab. If you're in Western North Dakota, please. You better. <laughs> take it. Take it serious. Yeah. We, everybody, we need to everybody be doing something serious. about Scab. Yes. This is a year to take it serious. And with that, we'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers.